uh, happy Father's Day to you. Also, I did mention that we have the mobile cry area in Exodus, and if you're a guest with us, you're kind of going, it's in the Bible somewhere, but uh, no, the building right across here is what we call Exodus Hall or Exodus Building, and, and that's the building straight across for anyone who, who wishes to use that. Quick question, is there a right way or a wrong way to speak to different types of people? <laughs> yes, there is. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be trendy here. Uh, I'm, I'm having back issues, so you know, occasionally I'll be sitting down on this stool. Uh, I know uh, I'm not trying to be hip or anything like that. I just don't want to hurt while I preach. So, um, so uh, yes, the answer is yes, there is a right way. For instance, how do we often t- speak to six-month-olds? You know, like idiots, right? You know, it's like goo-goo-ga-ga, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, what would happen if we speak to adults like six month, like we speak to six-month-olds? You know, what would happen if you spoke to your boss like you speak to a six-month-old? You know, the boss says something like, give me the Johnson file. And you say, oh, he needs the Johnson file. Isn't that so sweet? You know, or something like that. I mean, how, how long would it take for it to become really annoying if you, if you kept speaking that way to your boss? You know, why would it be annoying? Well, the reason it's annoying is because it's ultimately wrong to speak to your boss like you speak to a six-month-old. I mean, it's not just annoying in a sense that you're making the boss feel like they're six-month-old. It's really kind of a wrong way to do it. Now, here's a, a deeper question. Is there a right way or wrong way to speak to God? Generally, you know, there are types of communication towards God, you know, and you've probably heard the, if you've grown up in church, especially Southern Baptist Church, you've heard the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. A stands for what? And it's a description of what prayer is. A is what? Right, adoration. Good, good, good answer, class. Adoration, which essentially is worship. C? Confession. That's right, which is essentially repentance. T? That's right, which is essentially thanksgiving. And S? Supplication, Supplication which is a you know, $10 word that just means asking God for stuff. Okay, and so that's kind of what we do. And, you know, and that's really a good summary of the type of communication or, or of, of prayer towards God. But you know, within the acronym, we would agree that there's a right way and a wrong way to adore. There's a right way and a wrong way to, to confess. There's a right way and a wrong way to give thanksgiving. And there's definitely a wrong way or a right way to supplicate. You know, we joke about the give me a pony prayers. But God is generally not very interested in giving you a pony unless you live in an agrarian society. So this morning we're going to kind of um, focus on the confess part as we look at this idea of what is repentance. What is true repentance, what is wrong repentance. Uh, false repentance. So that's kind of the outline. If you'd like a map beforehand, we've got kind of two major points, and that is what is true repentance, and then we have what is false repentance. By the way, just to jump out of the flow for just a second, uh, we just got back about 10 o'clock last night from a week of camp with the students, and I swear I saw in the church constitution somewhere that if the student pastor is scheduled to preach the week, the Sunday after youth camp, he's not to be held responsible for anything he says. Okay, so... Uh, Throwing that out. Okay, now, back in. Um, 
And then under, under point number one of what is true repentance, we'll have four points. And then under point number two, what is false repentance, we will have one point. And that's kind of what's happening with my voice right now. Uh, parents, I did not yell at your students. They were absolutely perfect last week for the most part. Um, but there was just a lot of screaming involved at, at student things, if you, if you know, if you've ever been there. So, all right, so what is true repentance? Kind of our first point. What is true repentance? And we're going to pull this up out of Jonah 2 and and some other places in the scripture. So number one is this. True repentance is a recognition of God's sovereignty. Now last Sunday we looked at the lessons of how and why God answers prayer. If you were with us last Sunday. And uh, we saw that when God answers prayer, he reminds us of his sovereignty. Ultimately, that, what that means basically is that God shows us through answered prayer that he's in charge of the details. And we kind of know that, you know, we've been taught in church, you know, that God is in control, God is sovereign, that sort of thing. But, but answered prayer really makes that teaching experiential. You know, we, we know God's in charge, but when all of a sudden the details that we can't be in charge of fall into place for a specific prayer that we have made, then we go, oh... God really is in charge here. So um, you know, that's, that's just a, a precious gift from God. So how did Jonah in his repentance experience God's sovereignty? Number A, he recognized God was in charge of the details that put him where he was. So we see in verses 3 and 4, Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Students had a little, a little reward trip on the way home. We went whitewater rafting on the, on the Chattahoochee this time. We usually go to the, the other one. But um, we're on the Chattahoochee, and we hit this. My wife and I are kind of side by side on the one raft, and we kind of hit this big, you know, little crash, and water's pouring over us. And I kind of looked over and said, I don't know what it feels like to be Jonah now. You know, all of God's waves and billows were crashing over me. Now, notice Jonah didn't say, God, I know, or, or excuse me, Jonah didn't say, God, I don't know if you've noticed that I'm clearly in a jam. I don't know if this had something to do with you, and I know, you know, I, I know I deserve to be in a jam because of my sin, but, but could you come and now deliver me from, you know, could you possibly deliver me from this type of jam. And that's not what um, that's not what Jonah said in this particular instance. He rightly said, God, you caused the jam and I deserved it. That's what true repentance is. It's a it's a recognition that that God is in charge of the details that that kind of puts you in the jam in the first place. Now another person who experienced this and really is a great illustration of this is Job. So if you want to turn over to the book of Job, we're going to start in verse or chapter 31. Okay, we're going to start in 31, and we're going to do a lot of flipping. But I want you to kind of just see it with your eyes um, as we kind of look how Jonah's uh, just an excellent example of this. So to begin with, in Job 31, Job, all the way through the book, is relatively silent, but at this point, Job now takes an opportunity in chapter 31 to complain to God and try to justify himself, okay? If you know the story of Job, you know that God brought Job through way worse than Jonah 
for a whole lot less. I mean, Job was not a rebellious prophet by any means. Job was a righteous man, and yet God caused him to lose his entire family, to lead his wife into a point of rejection of him, um, to essentially lose his skin because he had, you know, don't want to be too graphic, but bloody pussy boils all over his skin, and he used a pot, piece of pottery, sharp pottery, to scrape himself for relief. And then he lost all of his livestock, and, you know, all of these things happened to Job, and, and Jonah was like, man, you know, you know how you share your sob story, and then someone always has one that's worse? You know, Job and Jonah got together, Jonah would say, uh, <laughs> you, you, you take the cake, Job. So, so in Job 31, starting in verses 3 through 6, here's what Job says. He says, Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my food has chastened, uh, if, if, excuse me, my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. That's a bold way of saying things if you're just an average human being. But you kind of get it. He's in severe pain and severe loss and huge tragedy. And he decides, you know, why is this happening to me? And he's kind of complaining to God. And he says, if I've done anything unrighteous, let me be put on court, put on trial. And we definitely see that if you roll down to verse 33. Looking at 33 through 35, he says... If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silent and do not go out of doors, oh, that I had one to hear me. And here it is. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Wow. He's like, what now, God? So the Almighty answers him. You know, it's one of the most brutal verbal corrections in human history. Starting over in chapter 40. So if you want to flip over to Job 40, there's one little time when an annoying friend gives him advice. And, and now we're in Job 40, and God begins his instructions to Job his rebuke of Job, starting in verse 7. And look how this thing starts. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then this goes on for two chapters. He goes, I made the ostrich. I made all this. Explain this to me, Job. Explain this to me, Job. Come on, Job. And now in Job 42. So if you want to flip over to Job 42, this is Job's answer to God's severe rebuke. Job says, in, starting in verse 2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have answered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, notice his answer there. He says, I despise myself. Now, this is quite a change from chapters 31. 
I mean, in 31, he says, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. And here in verse, in chapter 42, he says, I despise myself. That is a huge shift. I am justified in making this complaint. I am the worst human on the planet. That is a, that is a tremendous shift that happened here. Well, what caused the change? Basically, by saying, I despise myself, he saw himself as the holy sovereign God saw him. And his conclusion to that really was, there's no justification for me. There's nothing left for me to do but to repent in dust and ashes. So both Job and Jonah, in their recognition of God's sovereignty over their horrible situation, rightly responded with repentance. Now let me ask you this. Are you rightly... Because we both we all agreed, not both, we all agreed that, that there is a right way and wrong way to communicate with God or, or to speak to God. Are you rightly speaking to God when his sovereign hand is hard on your life? Do you recognize his sovereign hand and rightly say, like Job and a lot like Jonah, I repent in dust and ashes? Or do you wrongly communicate to God that you are undeserving of such punishment and such suffering? Jonah recognized God was in charge of the details that put him there. And therefore he realized there must be a reason for this and the reason is I'm in rebellion against God. Second thing is Jonah recognized God was in charge of the details of his deliverance. Starting in verse 6 of Jonah chapter 2, he says, At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Though being swallowed by a fish and three days later being spewed on the beach is kind of an, a unique way of being delivered, we would agree. Um, we know the rebellious human heart can cause a person to go through some serious, and I mean serious, mental gymnastics to try to explain away a sovereign God whose hand is all over that thing. I mean, Jonah could have been spewed on the beach, wrongly concluding something like, uh, I must have been around a bunch of, uh, you know, feeding fish or bait fish, and the, the, the fish just swooped in and just kind of took me with all of the other fish. And after a while, the fish, you know, finally got indigestion and finally just spit me up on the beach. God has nothing to do with this. Ha, 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 ha. But Jonah rightly concluded that the Lord rightly brought him out of the pit. And then in verse 9, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now here Jonah definitely gets it because he says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Therefore, essentially what he's, this is beautiful because belongs is not in the Hebrew. It just says salvation, Lord. Now, salvation, interestingly enough, is the word Yeshua. And it's kind of interesting that salvation not only belongs to the Lord, Yeshua is the Lord. You know, that, 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 that God is salvation incarnate. But essentially Jonah is saying that every rescue or every deliverance in human history did not happen without God's permission. Because God owns salvation. So true repentance is not praying in such a way that you say something like, God, can you save me? It's a prayer that says, God, please save me because you are the only one who can save me. 
And graciously enough, God has shown us through his word that we can not only say, God, can you save me because you're the only one who can? We say, God, you're the only one who can, and you do. The second thing about true repentance is this. True repentance rightfully acknowledges your status. Verse 4, Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Isn't it interesting that Jonah said, I am driven away from your sight? I mean, isn't that what he wanted in the first place? I mean, he clearly showed it by his geography. Clearly showed it by his intent. There's really not at least in the scriptures, a lot of space between God saying go and Jonah showing no. You know, Jonah just just going, just getting out of town. But he didn't want to be distant from God inside the belly of a well at the bottom of the sea. But that's what God did to Jonah, and I think that's kind of what God does to us. God kind of says, you want to be driven from my sight? Then I'll show you exactly what that means. You will be away from me, yes, but you will also be away from the source of why anything is good, right, and true. So Jonah's acknowledgement of being driven away from God's sight was not a declaration of victory. Finally, I'm away from God. It was an honest confession of being in the worst place he could possibly be. See, a person does not make excuses for the situations they find themselves in if they are truly repentant. You don't say, what I've done isn't so bad. I mean, come on. You say, what I've done has driven me away from the Lord because I wanted that. I wanted that thing. I wanted that person. I wanted that possession. I wanted that status. I wanted that food, I wanted that money, I wanted that, you know, you can name, we go down the list and pretty much peg everybody in the room, but I want that, rather than I want the Lord. And in doing so, the Lord has driven me away in order to show me that what looked so good, what looked so right, what looked so true, wasn't any of those things. Because the Lord is the one who makes all things good, right, and true. Your money without the Lord is not good or right or true. Your girlfriend or boyfriend without the Lord is not good, right, or true. Your spouse without the Lord is not good, right, true. Your kids without the Lord is not good, right, true. Your house is not good, right, or true. Your car, your job, your rank, your retirement, your hobby. None of that is good, right, and true if you are pursuing that with all of your heart, minus God. True repentance rightfully acknowledges your status. Number three, true repentance rightfully clings to God's mercy. Not only does he say, I'm driven away from your sight, he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, we pointed out last Sunday that... He names the temple twice, and you think, it, you know, being a Gentile and being a few hundred thousand years or whatever, a few thousand years separated from actual temple life and worship, you kind of go, what's that all about? Is the temple that important? It's just a building, that sort of thing. And it's true, in a sense, it's just a building, but inside the temple was the Holy of Holies, where they had the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, the chief priest would um, 
go into the Holy Holies once a year, and he would pour the animal blood on top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, as a sign of atoning for the people's sins. And as we said last week, that lid also had a name called the mercy seat. This is where people receive mercy. So the temple to an Orthodox practicing Jew would be the, 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 the mercy HQ, in a sense. That would be the place God's people go to receive mercy. So when you think about that, that Jonah goes from, I am driven from your sight. And he doesn't give a lot of details there. He does, gives none in the scriptures, but I'm, I'm almost certain that he is, since this is kind of a process of confession, that he, is, he knows the reasons why. I am driven from your sight. In other words, I am, I am despised by you at this moment because of my rebellion, yet I will look upon your temple. That is a very gutsy thing to say. But here's the thing. True repentance is gutsy. True repentance is gutsy. In his book, uh, When I Don't Desire God, Pastor John Piper, you know, calls this, he's got a catchphrase for it, it's called gutsy guilt. And he uses Micah 7, 7 through 9 as an illustrator. He says, Micah 7, 7 through 9 says this, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So you're thinking he's tracking this righteous guy as kind of not only uh, living righteously by saying things like, you know, I will look to the Lord, I'll wait for the God of my salvation, but he also kind of bucking up. You know, he's kind of, you know, not just a guy, but he's a soldier. He's kind of saying, you know, you know rejoice not over me, over my enemy, because ha, 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 if I fall, I'm just going to get right back up again. You kind of think, man, this guy is walking with Jesus, or in this case, walking with Yahweh. And then there's verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Now this sounds schizophrenic. I mean, at best it sounds like a contradiction. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him, yet the Lord will be a light to me. He will plead my cause. He will, he will hear me. He will bring me out to the light. Those two don't go together. I've sinned against God. He's going to be my friend. You know, to, you know, go to your neighbor this afternoon, and, and I'm not giving permission to do this, just like I didn't give permission to actually spit in somebody's eye, but um, <laughs> I'm not giving permission to do this, but go to your neighbor and punch them in the nose and then invite them over for, you know, an afternoon cookout. They're going to see a contradiction of what just happened there. And so there's kind of a contradiction here. So what's up with that? Well, it's really not a contradiction, and here's why. True repentance in its uh, gutsiness, let's say, acknowledges everything that is true. And there are no contradictions in the truth. So... Jonah, it, it, it is true that our, that our sin drives us from God and makes us worthy of every punishment and every correction his sovereign hand dishes out. There's no doubt about that. 
we deserve to be corrected by God 24-7. But true repentance also acknowledges with with really gut-level faith that Jesus saves sinners. That God mercifully saves sinners. So true repentance acknowledges the horror and consequences of our sin, but it also clings to the truth of God's mercy. Number four, true repentance results in thanksgiving. Starting verse nine, he says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now real quickly, just to chase a rabbit, I was approached by a church member last week who asked the question, that statement, I have vowed. Did Jonah make some sort of commitment to actually go to Nineveh, and then he kind of got cold feet and left and headed towards Tarshish, and now he's saying, I'm going to go back and fulfill my vow to the Lord. Very good question. But uh, we kind of toss it around, and, and, and I still think the answer is no. And here's, here's what I mean by this. Leviticus 22.18 says, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when anyone in the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel present a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer in the Lord. I think vows was just another term in, in Jewish culture of, of sacrificing to the Lord. So when Jonah says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. He's just saying, I'm going to be a faithful Jew. Okay? I don't think it means necessarily he made some sort of vow. Because we say vow and we think promise or, you know, something like that. But vow really means just the sacrifices that they did and that sort of thing. Because it literally was a vow to God that we were going to faithfully serve him by following the law, which meant the sacrificial system. Okay? So, rabbit's in the cage. Now let's move on. Um, <laughs> so... Often when the ACTS acronym that we talked about, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, um, is presented, it's presented in such a way that these four things are elements of prayer that often find themselves mixed together in our everyday prayers. I don't think anyone teaching ACTS says you only have to have A prayers. So adoration prayers only, confession prayers only, Thanksgiving prayers only, and supplication prayers only. Sometimes we have CSA prayers. You know, or ATS prayers, you know, or something like that. Because, you know, these elements essentially kind of feed off of one another. And in many ways, they, they kind of uh, are, are, are reliant upon each other. So we could begin a prayer with adoration. Lord, you are mighty, which would naturally roll over into thanksgiving. Lord, I thank you that you are mighty, as an example. So the natural rollover for repentance is also thanksgiving, I believe. Why is this true? Because, because of our previous point that because true repentance rests and trusts in and clings to the mercies of God, then uh, this idea of thanksgiving being a natural overflow of that just, just has to be true. You know, you say that, that God, please forgive me for being rude to X this morning. Thank you that you have forgiven me. You know, it's just, you're, you, when you cling to something, essentially it becomes your only hope. 
you know, that's why maybe if you're watching television and you're a big sports fan and the, the major championship is on the screen and all of a sudden the power goes out, you run up to the television and hug the television and say, no! Because this was my next four hours of entertainment. So you're kind of essentially clinging to the television because it's your only hope of whatever. Maybe a radical example, but uh, I hope, you know, some of you are nudging each other saying, yeah, last week. But anyway... Um, so, so when that truth, you know, kind of proves itself true that, that I cling to God's mercy and I receive God's mercy, then we say thank you. Now, the application question to ask ourselves is this, are we ungrateful when it comes to God's forgiveness? It's kind of a crazy question. Why would anyone be ungrateful when it comes to God's forgiveness? But if you have expressed true repentance to the Lord, then you will express true gratitude to the Lord. Have you ever run into an ungrateful person? Please don't name names. I can remember um, my wife and I, when we were married early on, um, we had an apartment in kind of this college town where we went to college. And um, we were middle school boys class teachers in our church. So we had him over one night, and there was this kid, middle schoolers are a trip, but um, there was this kid, Melissa went out of the way, get up early, make pancakes and food for the kids, breakfast in the morning and that sort of thing, and there was this kid had, you know, some pancakes on a, on a styrofoam plate, and, he's, and I'm kind of talking to him, and he's sitting there, and syrup is just pouring down on the carpet. Okay, he's a middle schooler, you know? I mean, some adults do that. But anyway, um, so, and, and I just kind of look at him. I kind of tap him on the shoulder, and I go, oh, he just walked away. <laughs> you know, I mean, you want to. I, you know, that's a natural response. That's not, not good. I wasn't very thankful at that time. No, no, no T happening in that acronym. But, um, but, but you know, you kind of just go, do you not understand Oh, I've got up early, made breakfast for you kids, you should be thankful, you know, that sort of, you know, you just, you just get frustrated with ungrateful people. Well, can you imagine? It's just a pancake situation and, and, and wiping up syrup on the floor. God says, I gave my son for you. I bled for this. And we have it in our system to just kind of look at God and, and even be made aware Look what just happened here. And we just kind of shrug our shoulders and walk away? That's not true repentance. Not by any means. Last point. What is false repentance? And this is where I'm not responsible for what I say. Because I gave the answer, true repentance does not something. So I didn't say false repentance is that really bothered me for some reason. It's nitpicky, I guess. But um, here's, here's the one point underneath this last point, and that is this. True repentance does not involve others. True repentance, we're talking about false repentance. You're messed up too. I'm, I'm, you're, you're as crazy as I am. Um, um, there's no way of phrasing this except to point out what true repentance is not. Okay, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I, I tried to false repentance is this, and... It just didn't work. I got home last night from student camp. I don't know if you've heard that before. Uh, at 10 o'clock, 
and, uh, <laughs> and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, so here it is. True repentance does not. In other words, this is what false repentance is, according to what Jonah did. True repentance does not involve others. Now, I'm going to explain. And I'm on page six, and there's eight pages. Okay, so there's some good explanation here. All right. Jonah says in verses eight and nine, he says, in the middle of all this, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You almost want to grab Jonah and say, do you not understand the depth of your sin, Jonah? From, from this statement here. I mean, I'm glad you want to sacrifice and pay your vows to the Lord, but to use this opportunity for repentance as a teaching moment to correct the sin of idol worshipers is misplaced at best. It reminds me of Peter in, in, in John chapter 21. Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and anchor, uh, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned, against, uh, leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, and we know this is John, when, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, it is my will that he, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, you might be saying, come on, Bill. I mean, aren't you splitting hairs here? I mean, maybe Jonah is mentioning idol worshipers kind of as a contrast to show how, how much he is eager to serve the Lord again. And my answer to that is not so much. I mean, the evidence is really stacked against that hypothesis that Jonah was just mentioning idol worshipers just to show his, his deep desire to want to serve the Lord again. And here's, here's a couple of reasons why, evidentiary reasons in the text that point out that that's probably not the conclusion a person needs to make. And number one is this, Jonah clearly hates the Ninevites. Now, he might have legitimate reasons. Troy just gave you a small picture a few weeks ago about the brutality of Assyria. And they were brutal. There's a real possibility Jonah, as a child, watched these guys kind of transcend to his town and kill a few people. So, so, but, but Jonah clearly hates the Ninevites for a prophet. Here's the deal. For a prophet, not just an average everyday Jew, but for a prophet to turn from an obvious call of God to go and to go the exact opposite direction is huge. The second reason, I think, as far as evidence is concerned, is there's evidence that it's not just them, but all Gentiles that Jonah doesn't like. I mean, was he eager to say anything about Yahweh until he was cajoled to, to the sailors? Or was he just trying to, you know, in a way, put as much distance between himself and God, and therefore he went underneath? I think he went underneath the sleep, under the misery of rejecting God and walking away from God. I get that. That is true. But I don't think he wanted to have anything to do with anyone who was not a Jew. You know, so, so by, by bringing up 
those who pay regard to vain idols in this, in this chapter 2, you know, combined with Jonah's obvious hatred of Ninevites and Sailorites and all the otherites, really, you know, really makes Jonah look more like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. So turn over to Luke chapter 18 real quick. Starting in verse 10, Jesus is sharing a parable. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or as we said when, they said when we were kids, the publican. Okay, so starting in verse 10, it says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee's prayer was not a repentant prayer. In fact, the Pharisee took time to pretty much condemn everyone but himself. You know, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not... First thing out of his mouth is not naming specific people or specific sins. The first thing out of his mouth is, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Wow. Wow. tax collector, on the other hand, prayed in a way that it was only about him and his sin. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I think Jonah was tracking pretty well. I think he was, you know, you cast me into the deep. Your waves and billows passed over me. I am driven from your sight. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Yes, Jonah, yes, Jonah, yes, Jonah, yes. And then he kind of slips back into Pharisee mode, in this mode of self-righteous condemnation. And folks, if, if your prayers are about more than you and your sin, then it isn't repentance. Lord, please forgive me for being bitter towards my husband or, or be angry towards my wife. Please forgive me for being this or being that. But they don't act like they love me. Or they are so mean to me. Or do you not understand, Lord, what they have done? And that's not true repentance. That is false repentance. If there is a centimeter of self-justification in your prayers of repentance, it is not true repentance. It's like David in Psalm 51.4, he says, this is the prayer after the great sin against Bathsheba, her husband, the death of their child, real mess, not to mention all the other soldiers that were killed because David wanted to kill his very faithful soldier who was married to the woman he had an affair with, etc., etc., and in Psalm 51, 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, can you imagine if you were Bathsheba's dad, 
and you heard David say that, you'd say, excuse me? You have sinned against my daughter. You have killed my son-in-law. And now my grandchild is going to die. But David knew what it meant to truly repent, that all sin, even if it's sin committed against individuals, still ultimately is only and first and foremost sin against God. So that was a true prayer of repentance. Now to wrap it up. Land the plane. End the message. Close the books. Trying to get my own little catchphrase here. All right. Why is it so important to analyze repentance in the book of Jonah? I don't think it gives us permission to analyze each person's repentance all the time. And, and you know, kind of like a referee in a football game, you know, you're kind of listening to your child repent, you know, and, and ask Jesus to forgive them, that sort of thing. And then they say something in the middle and you throw a yellow flag. That's not what, what we're, 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 we're doing here. Well, first of all, it's important to analyze repentance for ourselves or anything else in the Bible, you know, wherever it's addressed in the Bible. You know, we, 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 need, to, we need to know this is, this is important. You know, the Bible's addressing this, and so we need to find out exactly what the Bible's saying. There's that. But secondly, and more importantly, it's good to analyze repentance in Jonah because, now again, I'm not the Holy Spirit. None of us are necessarily here. But if someone were to ask me, what do you think, Bill? Do you think Jonah truly repented? I could only give a strong maybe. A very strong maybe. There, I mean, there's elements of it in there. I mean, we got, we go with points in the sermon. We got four against one, you know, in a sense. But, but I could only give a strong maybe. You know, he's really a mixed bag, like we kind of labeled him last week in the conversation I had. And we're all mixed bags in a lot of ways. And, but, you know, not just in chapter two, but in the whole book. And the reality is, folks, you know, this is just the reality that if the same question were asked about us, do you think blank truly repented? You know, do you, do you think, you know, Steve truly repented? Do you think, you know, Billy truly repented? You don't want the answer to be a strong maybe. You really don't. I mean, if you're a football fan... Mentioning sports to this whole thing, but if you are a football fan, you know, for instance, I'm I'm an Oklahoma State Cowboys fan. Grew up in Oklahoma. Most of my family went to that school. If someone said, "Is Oklahoma State going to win the national championship this year?" and I got a strong maybe, I'd be pretty happy with that because they're not, you know, hadn't been there in a while. If you're an Alabama fan, you would be like, "Maybe we win every year," um, <laughs> you know, or something like that. But you know, just as an illustrator, some of us would be more upset about that than in a question about our repentance. You know, if we're asked, do you think so-and-so truly repented, they truly walk with Christ, they truly follow after God, they truly live for him, they truly love the Lord and the Lord loves them, et cetera, et cetera, and someone says, you know, I'm going to have to give you an 80% yes you know, or something like that, then this sermon is a great opportunity for us just to take some of these things and really analyze when we repent. 
really kind of check ourselves in light of what the scripture says here and, and see if, if, if we truly are repentant. Because we, we could. I mean, it is not a, you know, if Jonah got on the beach and totally tried to explain God away with what happened to him, we would kind of on this side looking at the situation say, Jonah, you're crazy, but we found ourselves in certain situations where we just try to justify ourselves or try to make sense of this or make sense of that. The, the scripture says very well that the human heart is deceitful above all things. So we can walk away from prayer saying, man, I really repented there. No, you didn't. And neither did I. We could just fool ourselves into a lot of things. So scripture has graciously just given us an opportunity to kind of examine this thing and see where we are with this. So so the challenge this morning is this, you know, just analyze yourself when it comes to the category of repentance, not by sincerity, because we've been sincerely wrong, you know, not by conditions or situations or surroundings or, you know, environment or temperature or anything else, but we're to analyze this in the light of what scripture says. And um, let's not be a mixed bag on this really important issue. It's okay to be a mixed bag on a lot of things. You know, it's okay to, you know, like the Oklahoma State Cowboys one year and then jump on the Roll Tide bandwagon or whatever. None of that's going to change anyone's life. But let's not be a mixed bag when it comes to this. So I guess if you have not ever repented, repentance, you may not even know what that word means. It's just a confession of your sin before a holy God, a denying of yourself, seeking the Lord's forgiveness, surrendering yourself to him, acknowledging his sovereignty in all things, including your life, and placing your trust in him. If you've never done that, this morning could be an opportunity for that. But perhaps you have, you know, whatever we've talked about here. We, I'm not going to rehash everything. But true repentance versus false repentance is, is a very big deal. And so let's, let's check ourselves on these things. Let's pray together.